Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. On this week's pod, another AstraZeneca controversy. This time around the relative risk for adverse events for its vaccine for COVID-19. Selena joins us to break down the latest Alzheimer data from Eli Lilly, while Steve previews the PDUFA 7 agreement between industry and FDA, and this week's deal in focus, Takeda's Maverick takeout adds T-cell engagers to the Japanese Pharma's solid tumor toolkit. But first, a word from our sponsor. BioCentury this week is brought to you by Icon helping emerging biopharma meet their milestones to market. ICON offers a flexible partnership model for biotechs, acting as a fully externalized project development team, starting in the preclinical phase to clinical research to real-world studies through to commercialization. Learn more at iconplc.com biotech. AstraZeneca. It's all over the papers, Simone. What is going on in Europe right now? Well, over in that neck of the woods, Jeff, they'd probably call it a controversy. Well, AstraZeneca's vaccine has been in some ways blighted from the start. In some of the cases, that's due to AstraZeneca's own messaging and the way it conducted clinical trials. Right now, it's largely out of AstraZeneca's hands, in my opinion, although AZ has issued a press release. What's going on is an increasing number of countries, mostly in Europe, are suspending administration distribution of the AstraZeneca vaccine because they believe that there may be an association with some cardiovascular thrombotic side effects. AstraZeneca and various other commentators have pointed out that the number of cases in the vaccinated population is not higher and is in some cases lower than in the UK, some, I don't know, 17 million people, and there have been no cases. It is obviously possible that this could be a batch issue, and I don't think that's been explored. The problem is that governments, although Germany has, according to the Wall Street Journal, suspended based on advice from a regulator, in other countries, they have been suspending administration of the vaccine without their regulators saying anything. And EMA is saying it's watching it. The UK's MHRA has said they don't see a signal. I don't need to tell you that the real danger of this is vaccine skepticism. More and more people are going to be concerned about taking it. On top of that, what many scientists are pointing out is you have a runaway pandemic. The danger of dying and contracting COVID is far higher and outweighs the risks, which is EMA's position. Seems to me that the real question here, besides what happens with AstraZeneca's vaccine, is whether this kind of, well, what looks so far like irrational fear will spread to vaccines manufactured by other companies because the background rate of events is going to be the same for all of the vaccines. There's going to be things that are going to happen after people take any vaccine. If there's this distrust of science and of regulatory officials, I think you have to be really concerned about the kind of fear spreading to other vaccines. I think that's a very real concern. 
Personally, I think it would be remiss not to take into account with the AstraZeneca vaccine is it's been highly politicized in Europe. First of all, Europe is way behind the UK and the US in terms of vaccinations. They are getting hammered by their public on that. Secondly, there have been all kinds of shenanigans regarding supply of the AstraZeneca vaccine and various factories, manufacturing sites inside Europe, charges that AstraZeneca have not dealt fairly with this or lived up to their commitments, which AstraZeneca rejects. The point is there's been a large amount of politicization and I do not know, Steve, whether what those governments are doing is saying it's all going to be good once we get the J&J one or the Pfizer one or the Novavax one. It's just this one we're concerned about. Or whether the train's left the station, like you say. And once you see doubt, you see doubt. I mean, if the, if the rate of background events in the general public would be the same for all of them, then there's already data presumably, for the other vaccines. That could be equally alarming. So maybe the question is, why haven't they been swept up into it? Is it just because AstraZeneca vaccines started out amid so much uncertainty because of the way the trials are run? And what would change how people feel about the mRNA vaccines now? Yeah, I think one thing to bear in mind is, I think there's more, just more data out there for the AstraZeneca vaccine. So in the US, it's hard to get a handle on the data because it's not collected as efficiently. Israel has a lot of data on the vaccines it's administered, which are not yet AstraZeneca's. But I think just numerically, there's a lot more AstraZeneca data out there. And this was like the original forerunner. There was so much splashy coverage right out of the gate. So expectations were so high here. Let's turn to Selena. Lily presented Alzheimer's data at the annual ADPD meeting on Saturday. We did see top line data in January. Selena, what do the detailed data show? The data were interesting for, for a couple of reasons. And proponents of the amyloid hypothesis will say, look, now we have two agents that do what they're supposed to do, the clear amyloid from the brain in a robust way, and they both produce some sort of efficacy signal. You could argue about how strong that signal is. And so after 20 years of trying and trying and trying and failing, we finally have some progress. On the other hand, the findings do support each other that there might be some effect of clearing plaque from the brain, but they also seem to suggest that the clinical effect of that will be small, which does raise the question of, is this as good as it's going to get for the amyloid hypothesis? That would certainly argue we need a whole lot more in terms of other mechanisms. Are you saying then that the argument shifted from, is the effect real, to is the effect substantial enough that we would care about it? Or is there still uh, concern about whether it's real or not? Well, certainly the dialogue at the ADPD conference that happened last week and over the weekend was around clinical meaningfulness. I think a lot of people would concede that there is some kind of efficacy signal with both of these. It's just, is it enough to actually matter for patients? You have separate issues with the two because for aducanumab, you have a data set package delivered to regulators that has some fundamental problems with it. So if it were approved based on that data set. You have questions about what does that do to the credibility of FDA? What kind of a precedent does it set for the next things? But there is some kind of signal in there. It's just probably pretty weak. And a third trial would certainly help a lot in building confidence around it. Now with the Eli Lilly's data, on their primary endpoint, there was clear separation from placebo. There just was. Secondary endpoints were not quite as convincing. The question, is this enough to move the needle for patients? Selena, what's the timeline for Lily's data to, let's say, get to regulators? And is there reason to believe that it's going to run into the same kind of flared debate 
that the Biogen data did? Well, they're running a confirmatory trial now. So this was a 200 and some person phase two, what they reported on over the weekend. They're running a confirmatory phase two, that's 500 people. They say they've designed them both to be registrational, pivotal. So it seems like they're angling to, to go to regulators without a large phase three. Now, both Eli Lilly and Biogen presented data at the conference over the weekend. A lot of the Biogen data had been reported before, but both of them made sure to address the criticisms that came up in the Adekanumab Advisory Committee meeting around clinical meaningfulness, around whether having ARIA-E be a class effect of amyloid agents, and that's a side effect that causes brain swelling, whether that leads to selective unblinding in your treatment arm that introduces bias into the data. And they both presented arguments for why that's not the case. So Eli Lilly can do these things ahead of time and try to get their arguments squared away before they go to regulators, whereas Biogen's now where it's at. So Selena, we know that there are, perhaps more than in any other indication, very strong pro-amyloid and anti-amyloid camps, people who believe that this approach works and people who believe that this approach does not work. I'm not sure if there are any agnostics out there, actually. My question is, are these data going to move anybody from one camp to another? Oh, people are so entrenched. You are right. I don't know if they're movable. It's almost like religion. And do you think that carries through to physicians and whether they are likely to prescribe these drugs if they did get approved? You know, yeah, the question of whether these will get prescribed has so many pieces to it. One is that you have to find the right patient for the treatment. And the way they do that in trials is through PET imaging. And the way Eli Lilly did it is not through one PET imaging agent, but two. So these are costly. They require special equipment. Just having that as a prerequisite for treatment, which it may well be, is going to limit access on its own. And I can't really say if how eager physicians will be to prescribe this. There are certainly are differences between them and their opinions, but I know that they're desperate to be able to give something to their patients. And some weak signal of any kind of benefit is better than none. And that's what the choices are today. There's not really good therapies for this. Ending thoughts, Selena, if you have one in mind. Well, yeah. I mean, the other thing, people in the amyloid field have said what they've learned over the years is that if an amyloid therapy is going to be effective, it needs to be given early in the course of disease. And people just say this, it's a fact, but of course the reality is there hasn't been a clear clinical win that you can point to, to say, oh, that's the proof. It's going to work early. And so one thing that was interesting about the Lilly data is that they took their patient population and they divided them into three groups by low, medium, or high levels of tau pathology in the brain. It's a co-pathology that comes in the disease too. And they showed that this clinical effect that they saw was only present in those who had the lowest levels of tau. So it's one of the pieces, it's like a piece of data you can point to to say, okay, maybe they're right. Maybe there is a place for amyloid and it's very early. So, you know, the next frontier, of course, is figuring out how to take this into prevention settings. And that comes with a whole bunch of challenges. Thanks for that, Selena. Your story, we published it yesterday, so that's up on biocentry.com for those who want to read it. Let's turn to Washington. Steve Padufa, it only comes once every five years. It's a key financial pillar for FDA's oversight of drugs and a tool for increasing the predictability of regulatory procedures. It's also a vehicle for setting funding priorities. 
Steve, where do things stand? There are two things to know about Padufa 7, the next round of Padufa. One is that the fee's going up. By the end of it, it's going to be about $4 million. It's about $2.9 million now. And almost all of that increased money is going to go to biologics because Sieber believes that there's going to be an onslaught of cell and gene therapies and other modalities that are regulated as biologics, and they don't have enough staff to handle the workload that they've got now. And they're convinced that there's going to be a huge workload coming up over the next five years, and they need to get ready for it. I think that workload is extraordinary. They are anticipating, according to your story, Steve Wright, 10 to 20 gene therapies a year by 2025. And for context, there are two gene therapies approved by FDA on the market. There's actually a third one, if you include oncolytic viruses, which FDA does, that have been approved in the last three years. So that's just an incredible ramp up that they are expecting. Yeah, they're expecting a ramp up in applications. That's at the end of the process. And they're also expecting that the increase in the number of INDs, the number of trials is going to go up tremendously. They also believe, and it's a fact, that there's a lot more work that needs to be done to review these gene and cell therapies than there is for other kinds of therapies, maybe for small molecules. One, because they're novel, and two, because there's so much more of the work involves CMC, the, the manufacturing processes. What Peter Marks, the head of CBER, has said is that 80% of the work in reviewing a cell or gene therapy is in the CMC, and that's a process that's quite intensive. Another thing that's happening is that there are a lot of smaller companies that are getting into the game and they need a lot more handholding from FDA if they're going to be successful. That's also something that's quite labor and resource intensive. A quick question about the fees, because it's a huge hike in the fees. On the other hand, does that difference really make an impact on any of the companies that are paying it? So the big companies, which are the ones that dominate the Padufa negotiations, don't care. An increase from 2.9 million to 4 million for them doesn't make any difference. There are processes in place where a company filing their first drug doesn't have to pay their user fees. There are exceptions for orphan drugs and things like that. So I've never heard a company say that the PDUFA fee is a rate limiting factor for, for drug development. On the other hand, they just like everybody else, they don't like paying more if they don't have to. There's a more fundamental issue, which is in the story that I wrote, we had this great chart that showed the massive increase in fees and the increase in the percentage of FDA's funding that comes from user fees compared to appropriations from the federal government. And I think that's a more serious question, which is really how much of our drug regulation should be funded from user fees, how much of it should be funded from the taxpayers, and what are the things that user fees don't fund that are being starved because Congress doesn't want to increase the base appropriations for the FDA. All right, Stephen, what's the next shoe to drop on this? The negotiations haven't completely finished. Everything that I reported in my story was based on sources who were involved in the negotiations or briefed in the negotiations telling me about the status of things. All of this is going to be made public at some point. My guess is it's going to be in the fall or in the winter. Sometime either late this year or early next year, the Padupa agreement will be sent to Congress. And then all bets are off. Who knows what Congress is going to do? My guess is that they're going to create new missions for FDA. 
and they're going to want to incorporate learnings from the COVID experience in some kind of legislation that's going to accompany the user fees. Excellent. Let's turn to our deal in focus this week. Takeda is paying up to $525 million for Bay Area Biotech Maverick. It's the latest move by the Japanese pharma to transform its once small molecule heavy pipeline to one built on multiple modalities. The pharma first partnered with Maverick back in 2017. That deal marked its foothold in the T-cell engager space. And with it came the potential to take the modality into solid tumors. The deal was one of a trio of deals unveiled at that year's JPM. The headliner, of course, Takeda's $5 billion deal to take out Ariad, which helped lead Takeda's commercial expansion into solid tumors in the U.S. And all of that came right after CEO Christoph Weber announced a reorg of Takeda, the goal being to target top 10 positions by revenue over a decade in three indications, cancer, GI, and CNS. Simone, I'm going to put you on the spot here. How well do you think Takeda is doing with this transformation and what's next? Are, are they there? More deals? What do you think? Well, I can't speak to the issue of revenues and how they've done with that and if they're on track towards that goal. I can certainly tell you that CEO Christoph Weber and in particular Andy Plump, who is president of R&D there, have pretty much transformed Takeda from a fairly buttoned down, to use your phrase. They are doing a lot of really interesting deals with small companies that have got very edgy technologies. They really have done an incredible job of, as I said, turning that big ship around. They have a lot of ties in academia as well. I know people there who are involved in looking at external innovation. They have a site in Boston in terms of accessing really edgy, new, interesting technologies. They've done a great job and we will watch and see whether that carries through into their top line and their bottom line. Yeah, indeed. And they've also been exploring novel deal structures. They did that cool deal with Jeremy Levin's shop, Ovid, a few years ago for, uh, was it an angel man syndrome therapy? In that case, they were having Ovid take most yeah. of the development stuff, although now they've switched back that horse, right? Yeah, I think they... Ovid got it into phase two, and that was the plan. And now Takeda's off to take it the final mile, hopefully. All right, well, that's all we have time for this week. Ahead this week on Biocentry.com, Steve sits down with Novavax's Gregory Glenn, president for R&D. And we'll have the latest from the Coalition for the Epidemic Preparedness innovations. You don't wait for one pandemic to be over before working on the next one. Simone will be looking at what CEPI is working on and how KOLs view the task at hand. We'll also bring you our regular features such as our daily data bite and the latest from our emerging company profile series. Meanwhile, the BioCentry team continues to prep for BioEquity Europe. It's our all-digital conference scheduled for May 17th 
to 19th. You can learn more at bioequityeurope.com. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.